You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. We're going to read through Exodus chapter 33 to 34, 7 before Ralph comes up and shares the word with us. So Tessa, would you like to start us through Exodus 33? Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give, you, give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. 
Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Ralph's now going to share the word to us. Great, thank you so much, Eric and Tessa, and hello, everyone. It's great uh, to be able to be with you and to bring this next part uh, of the book of Exodus uh, to you. Uh, Please do open up your Bibles. We're going to be there in Exodus 33 and 34 the whole time. Uh, And let me pray for us as we prepare to come and dive into God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us and you speak to us today. Thank you that your word is living and active. And Lord, would we experience that here and now? Lord, we want to meet with you in your word. We want to encounter you by the Holy Spirit as we open the very words of life itself. So Lord, work that in our lives now, we pray. Amen. Well, what would be a real game changer for you? I mean, what would really, really change your life? What do you think it would take to bring real transformation? Uh, This week, an article in the Wall Street Journal caught my attention. Uh, The article was titled, Is That It?, And it documented the experience of a number of people who'd made it to the very top of their profession. People like Andy Dunn, who sold his clothing retailer, Bonobos, to Walmart in a $310 million deal. While the world watched on in awe, Dunn recalled finding the the joy and achievement he expected to actually be, in his words, illusory. Or Steve Babcock. Uh, Steve moved from managing a small firm in Colorado uh, to, to managing a large firm in New York City. He went from 50 people under him to 200 people under him. The world was impressed. But according to Babcock, it left him feeling utterly empty, a shell of his true self. You know, getting exactly what you want often doesn't live up to its billing. So what do you want? What would be a game changer for you? What would make the real difference in your life? I'm guessing that many people here this afternoon are Christians. Now, I I know a lot of you aren't yet Christians, but I suspect the fact that you're here today probably means, probably means, that what you're looking for is not entirely different to what Christians are looking for. You really want an experience of God. Not religion, 
not ritual, but you really want to meet with God in an awe-inspiring, life-transforming, not-the-breath-out-of-you way. That would make the real difference in your life. That would be a game-changer. Well, today, we're going to be thinking about exactly that. We're back in the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And it's all about how the promises that God made in the first book, the book of Genesis, is all about how those promises begin to be fulfilled. You see, back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, God made a number of promises to Abraham. He promised Abraham that Abraham would become a great nation, the promise of a people. He then promised that he'd give them an incredible promised land, the promise of a place. And then thirdly, the big one, God promised Abraham his presence, that God himself would dwell with his people. By the end of the book of Exodus, all of those promises, they look like they're in tatters. Abraham's family is pretty big, bigger than my family. He had 70 in his family. But they're not as numerous as the stars in the sky, as God had promised. And the people, that they're living in Egypt, not in Canaan. It's in no place yet. And God is not living among the people. They're living in Egypt, surrounded by the pyramids and by the Egyptian idols. And so you see, after all that in the book of Exodus, in the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus is all about how God starts to fulfill those promises that he'd left unfulfilled in the book of Genesis. And it starts, well, when we get to Exodus chapter 1, we find that God's people in Egypt, they've grown, they've grown to 2 million people. The promise of a people is being fulfilled. By the end of chapter 14 of Exodus, God has rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he's leading them through the wilderness to the promised land, to the place that he had said he would give them. The second promise being fulfilled. And so the next step, the next step is for God to establish his permanent presence with them. That's promise three. And things are already in hand. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you'll know that Moses was up Mount Sinai. And up Mount Sinai, he was receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, the the great tent, which would be where God would descend and be with his people. But then we had the events we saw two Sundays ago. While Moses was up on the mountain finding out about the provisions for God's presence with his people, the people were down in the camp, impatient, frustrated, begging Aaron to make for them a golden calf for them to worship so they can have their God with them. The Lord sees and he tells Moses that he's about to destroy the people for their rebellion. Moses steps in. He offers to be punished in their place. He says, I will be blotted out of the book of life in their place. Just let them go free. And we read that the Lord relented. 
which is where we left things two weeks ago. There's just one problem. God's presence. You see, the people needed God's presence to lead them and to guide them. But because of their sin, God's presence was profoundly dangerous for them. Which brings us to our first point today, the danger of God's presence. Uh, Chapter 33 starts really well. The Lord says to Moses, up and leave, verse 1. I'm about to fulfill my promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The promise of the people has already been fulfilled. Now I'm going to give you the place. I'm going to send, verse 2, an angel with you who's going to give you military supremacy. This angel, he's like the celestial equivalent of an Apache attack helicopter. Guaranteed victory. And the place, God says, the place I'm going to give you, it's far better than you possibly imagined. Let me tell you what this place is going to be like. It's a place that is is flowing with milk and honey. You'll have everything you need, everything to be healthy and happy and safe and to flourish. You will have it all. There's just one thing. Verse 3, I won't go with you. Shock. Why? Because, verse 3, you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you along the way. We've already met this language of being stiff-necked. We had it back in chapter 32, verse 9. And being stiff-necked, it it describes the sin of idolatry. What is an idol? We, We tend to see idols as always being really bad things. But, but what idols are, according to the Bible, is they're normally very good things that we have turned into God things. An idol is anything that we seek to derive meaning and life and joy from instead of seeking that from God. So for some of us, that's a person. Our boyfriend or girlfriend, our spouse, our children. For others of us, it's work. That's where we seek to find our identity. That's where we seek to find our sense of self-worth. For others, it's popularity. We crave people's acceptance and approval. For others, it's our bank balance. That's where we seek to find security and control. Whatever it is, whatever our particular idol is, it draws us away from God. We've got a dog back home in the Cunnington household. She's called Maisie, and this is a picture of her. Isn't she cute? Like, she is sweet a lot of the time. But, but if you take her out for a walk and she spots someone's thrown away takeaway with food still in it, She will make a beeline for that takeaway no matter what she's supposed to be doing. She'll go straight for it. And it's a bit like that with idols. When we see that thing that we seek to find meaning in, we make a beeline for it and nothing can stop us. We become 
stiff-necked. Refusing to go God's way because we hanker after our God substitutes. And that has consequences. Look at verse 3 with me. Now, when God says, I might destroy you, he's not questioning his own self-control there. He's not saying, oh, if you do this, I, I don't know, I might lose it and just destroy you. That's not what he's saying. It's, it's a warning. He's saying, if I go with you and if you rebel, then I will surely judge and destroy you for that rebellion. You see, the Lord and sinful people, they are incompatible. Just like light and dark. If you have light and darkness together, they're incompatible. The light will drown out the darkness. Or if you put fire and wood together, they're incompatible. The fire will eat up the wood. They cannot coexist. Nor can God coexist with sinful humanity. Anything impure that comes into contact with God will inevitably be burnt up. So God says, it's better if I don't go with you, Israel. Now, let me ask you, how would you have responded had God said this to you? Now, don't answer too quickly in your head. Let me rephrase what God said. Let me rephrase it for you. God says to you, I'm going to give you absolutely everything you ever dreamed of. I'm going to give you a beautiful, beautiful four-bed detached house. You are going to have 2.4 children, and what's more, they're going to be well-behaved, not like all the other kids. You're going to have an amazing spouse, incredibly beautiful, handsome, most intelligent and gracious and kind and serving the best spouse in the world. You're going to have a great garden. It's going to be brilliant. The kids are going to be able to play in it. There's going to be a hammock out there, and you're going to be able to lie on that every day. And you know, the sun is going to shine every single day. It's not going to be in Manchester, this place. And you're going to love your job. It's going to be so fulfilling. Every single thing you turn your hand to, it's going to succeed. It's going to be a great success. You are going to be in the Forbes 500. You are going to be impressive. There's only one thing. You won't need to worry about me anymore. No need to go to church. No need to give your money. No need to have a quiet time to read the Bible and pray. How would you respond if God said that to you? Let's be blunt. I think that's what the average person in Manchester really wants. All of God's blessings, but none of God. All of his gifts, but none of his demands. And if we're being really honest... I suspect it's what many of us want too. The forgiveness of God, but not his demands. The health, the happiness, and the security that God gives, but not the demands that his presence makes on our lives. We'll take a look at how the Israelites respond. 
verse 4, they mourn. They're devastated. Because they cannot imagine a future without God. Isn't that challenging to us? And notice how in these verses they take off their ornaments. It's a weird thing to do. Why do they do that? Well, jewelry was really significant back then. And it was really symbolic. Because, of course, there wasn't a Barclays and a NatWest bank down the corner. When people wanted to save their money, they saved it by what they wore. Their earrings, their rings, their necklaces, those were their bank accounts. And it was those very ornaments that the people gave to Aaron in chapter 32 and said, Aaron, make for us a God out of our most valuable items. It's incredibly symbolic. But now they take off their bank accounts, they lay them at the feet of God, and they say, now we're going to serve you, Lord, with this. Not our idols. Which means they recognize their need for God's presence. Which brings us to our second point today. Uh, That's verses 7 through to 16. Now, verses 7 to 11, they've really puzzled Bible commentators. You see, these verses, look at them. Verses 7 to 11, they describe Moses going outside the camp to a tent that he's pitched, which Moses called the tent of meeting. Now, now that's the same name that was given to the tabernacle, which hadn't yet been built because the Israelites had rebelled. So so what's going on here? What's this other tent of meeting? Well, there was a famine of God's presence at that time. The Lord had to keep his distance from the Israelites for their own safety. But Moses, Moses was determined, he was absolutely determined to do whatever it takes to get some of the presence of God. If it meant leaving the camp, then so be it. If it meant leaving the comfort of his home, if it meant leaving the security of his people, if it meant leaving the intimacy of being with his wife and family, then fine, he'd do it. Anything to get close to God. Now, the way we Christians experience the presence of God today is different. We're going to come on to that in just a moment. But there is a sense in which every Christian experiences something of what Moses and the people were experiencing here in chapter 33. Every Christian sometimes feels spiritually dry. You know what I mean? Some of you are probably feeling it right now. You turn up to church and you leave the service thinking, yeah, not much happened there. We open our Bibles in the morning to to do our quiet times and we read, but it's just words on a page to us. Just going through the motions, doing what we do every day. And there are two temptations when that happens to us, when we experience that spiritual dryness. One temptation is to feel really worried. Perhaps the reason I'm feeling like this is I'm not a Christian at all. 
But be really careful there. The very fact that you are uncomfortable with the way that you are feeling is very good evidence that you are, in fact, a Christian. If you weren't, you wouldn't really be very bothered. But secondly, when we're feeling spiritually dry, we can be tempted to give up. What's the point of reading my Bible and praying? I get nothing out of it anymore. I might as well just watch Netflix. I find that much more engaging. No. No. It is an inevitable part of the Christian life to feel spiritually dry at times. To feel that God is distant at times. It happens to every single Christian. We all go through seasons of that. Sometimes it lasts for weeks, sometimes months, sometimes even years. I have experienced that myself. But the answer is never, never to give up. Rather, it's to lean into the Lord all the more. Friends, go outside the camp of your spiritual dryness. Seek out God more and more by praying more and more, by reading and meditating on the word more and more, doing whatever it takes, just like Moses, doing whatever it takes to experience God's presence, to go deeper with the Lord, whatever it takes. But I guess that begs the question, well, what are we talking about here? What exactly is an experience of God's presence? Take a look at verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 33. We read that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Face to face. And that's so, so interesting. Because a little later in the passage, in verses 12 to 16, Moses pleads with God for God's presence to go with the people. And the word used for presence there in the original Hebrew is the word for face. The same word as is used in verse 11. When Moses says he wants God's presence, he's saying, I want your face, Lord. Do you get the significance of God's face? You know, I think I've gotten a much easier job preaching this passage today in 2013 than I would have had back in 2019. Because COVID taught us a thing or two, didn't it, about the significance of in-person meetings. You see, phone and email and and the great glory of Zoom, they have their purposes, don't they? they? They helped us during the lockdowns. But they are so very, very limited. Imagine you're starting a new relationship with a guy or a girl. You may well start that relationship online, using a dating Christian dating website. But very, very soon, you will want to meet that person in person and go for a date. Why? Well, because that is how we really get to know someone. That's how we get to know not simply things about that person, but we actually get to know the person themselves, relationally, personally. 
It, it is only when you're face to face with someone, when you can see their lips move, when you can see their facial expression, it's only when you can see their emotions, when you can embrace them and share things with them, it is only then that you truly get to know them personally and individually. And you know, it is only when we're face to face with someone that that person starts to change us. What do I mean? Well, we've all heard the saying, bad company breeds bad character, haven't we? That's why the parents among us, we're absolutely desperate to find out what sort of friendship circles our kids are mixing with at school because we know what will happen if they get in with the wrong crowd. It will rub off on them. And, of course, it works both ways. We know this. We, we know our friends, when they started dating a new person, that experience of dating that person, it will inevitably change them. Sometimes it will change them for the good. You know, they'll have a permanent smile on their face. They'll be really joyful. They'll be really generous, really self-giving, want to grow and improve themselves. But sometimes the relationship will be toxic, and it will turn them toxic too. Because being face-to-face with someone always changes us, either for good or for bad. And you see, that is why Moses longs to be face-to-face with the Lord. He wants to know God, not simply know things about God, but to know God personally and to be transformed by him. Do you want the same thing? Now, take a look at the conversation that takes place between Moses and God in verses 12 to 16. Moses says, verse 13, teach me your ways, I want to know you. Not simply know things about you, but know you. And God replies, my presence, verse 14, that is my face, will go with you and I will give you rest. And we read this and we think, great, great. That is exactly what Moses wants. He's asked for God's presence with him and God has said yes. But look at how Moses responds. If your presence, again your face, does not go with us, do not send us. What's going on here? God says he'll go And now Moses says, why won't you go? Well, the clue is in the us in verse 15. You see, in the original, the you in verse 14 is singular, not plural. The Lord is saying here in verse 14, I will go with you, Moses, but I won't go with the people. And Moses replies, no, Lord, that is not enough. If you won't go with the people, that is not enough. We all need you to go with you, us. We, we all need your face, Lord. You see, Moses is hungering for God's presence, not just for himself, but for all of the people. And look at his reason. It's there in verse 16. Because... What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Let me ask you, why do you long to have a deep, 
experience of the presence of God. But why do you want that? I think for most of us, we want it because we think it will change our lives. We think it will fulfill us. Well, look at how different Moses' reason is. I'm so grateful for a sermon by Tim Keller that helped me to see this. Moses wanted God's presence not for himself, but for the sake of others. He wants God to go with the Israelites so that the Israelites are distinctive, so that they stick out. People in the nation see them, and they long to come to the God who changes. Those of you who are parents here this afternoon, I think you can probably relate to this. We want the best for our kids, don't we? Which often means we want to live in a nice neighborhood. We want our kids to go to a good school. We want them to have nice friends. We want them to have good things, nice clothes, fun toys to play with. We want them to enjoy pastimes, to, to go to football and, and, and to, to play music and do art. And we, we want them to enjoy church. We want to make sure they go to a church with a really good kid's work, with kids their own age, because we really want them to grow up to be healthy, happy, flourishing Christians. That's what we long for. But do you know what your children need more than anything else, parents? They need you to hunger for God's presence. To pursue it. To, to say with Moses in verse 16, if you don't go, Lord, with us, we won't go. Listen, because, because I know that I personally really need to hear this. That pursuing of God's presence will have a far more profound and lasting effect on your children than living in Didsbury will, or sending your kids to the best schools. What they need more than anything else is for you and I to hunger after God's presence, to show them metaphorically what if we read on to the end of chapter 34, we'd see Moses comes down having been in the presence of the Lord and his face is radiant. Because God's presence transforms. That is what our kids need to see. You know, the same is true for you if you don't have kids. The same is true for you of your non-Christian friends, colleagues, and housemates. They don't need you to have amazing answers to their questions about how we make sense of God and suffering and science. No, what they need is to see the impact of God's presence on your life. They need to see, verse 16, that you are distinct. That your face is radiant because you have been with the face of the Lord. Gloriously transformed by his presence. So finally, I guess that begs the question, how do we pursue? How do we get God's presence today? A few things I want us to see as we wrap up, and this will be quick. Firstly, the need for a mediator. Did, did you notice that? Well, what is the reason that the Lord agrees to go with the Israelites? It's there in verse 17. It is because 
the Lord was pleased with Moses, their mediator. Secondly, look at what the Lord does for Moses. Verse 18, Moses asked to see God's glory. And what does God do? Verse 19, he promises, Moses, I will cause all my goodness to go in front of you. Now, now that happens in chapter 34, verses 4 to 7. Moses, he's back up Mount Sinai. He's carrying two new stone tablets to replace the ones that got shattered in chapter 32. Moses is asked to see God's glory. And what does he get? Verse 6 of chapter 34, he gets God's voice. As Tim Chester puts it, instead of a description of the way God looks, Moses gets a description of of what God is like. This is what it means for the goodness of God to pass in front of Moses. He hears a voice, and a voice proclaims the Lord's name. The name of God means his character and his attributes. Verse 6. This is God's goodness. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Friends, this is how we meet with God. How we experience him face to face today. We experience him face to face when we hear God's word and we grasp his goodness. And at the heart of God's goodness is a tension. It's an intriguing tension. It's right there at the end of what I read. You see, the Lord is a good God who forgives Yet the Lord is a good God who punishes sin. He is a God we cannot live with because his justice will burn us up because of our sin. But he is a God that we cannot live without because we desperately need his grace and forgiveness. How do we resolve that tension? How, how do we square that circle? Well, we need a mediator. We need a better Moses. You know, those, those words used by the Lord to describe Moses in verse 17, they are almost identical to the words used by the father of Jesus at his baptism. The Lord said, this is my son who I love. With him I am well pleased. You see, Jesus came not simply to reveal God to us. He came to be God with us. According to John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling, literally says, he tabernacled among us. That means Jesus pitched his tent, not outside the camp, but right in the center of our lives. And in Jesus, God's goodness is supremely revealed. Listen to this, it's a little bit later on in John chapter 1, we read, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
You see, Jesus brought God's goodness to us. He brought God's grace, forgiveness for our sinners, but he brought God's truth, the just punishment of sin. And how did he do it? Through the cross. It was there at the cross that sin was dealt with. As Jesus bore our sin in our place, God's holy presence destroyed Jesus. Quite literally, Jesus was burned up by the presence of God in our place. So that God could live with us once more. Have you put your trust in that today? Have you laid down your treasure at Jesus' feet and given your life to the one who was burnt up in your place? Well, if you have, it will make all the difference in your life. Let me tell you why. Because you can be face to face with God once more. Knowing and being known like you have never been known before. As you go out from this place, the Lord will go with you and he has promised that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. We experience that now in part and we must pursue it. We must long for a deeper experience of the presence of God. That's one of the key things we do when we, we gather together on a Sunday to, to hear from God's word together and to sing God's truth deep into our souls. That's what we're going to do in just a few moments. We need to hunger after God's presence in our lives. You know, one day we're going to experience it in full. In all its life-transforming glory. As we close, let me just read some words for us from 1 John chapter 3. There's some of the most amazing words in the Bible. They speak of a time to come when Jesus will return, we will see him and we will come face to face with him and experience his life-transforming presence forever. Listen to this. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, You, you are God with us. Thank you that 2,000 years ago, you took on flesh and you pitched your tent right in the center of our lives. Thank you that you choose to know us. Thank you that you, through the cross, you have resolved that tension. That tension of being absolutely good in your justice and being absolutely good in your grace and forgiveness. You have brought those two things together, bringing us grace in place of grace and truth. You've done it again and again for us. Oh Lord, we, 
We can't even get our heads around it, but we know we want to go deeper into your presence, into grasping the every spiritual blessing we have in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, even today, would we experience what it means to be face-to-face with you, knowing you and being known by you. And Lord, as we struggle in this life and all the ups and downs it brings, Lord, would you help us to look forward to that day when we will be before you, when we will see you face-to-face and be transformed forevermore. Amen.